not so difficult to get one sensational shot. You're listening to One Sensational Shot, The Electronic Labyrinth. This is a podcast where we like to talk about uh, the films that matter most to us and give more of a deep analysis into uh, the films of uh, literally just been trawling through all my DVDs in alphabetical order, trying to get my way through them. And uh, we've got two of my favourites today, although I guess it's my DVD collection, so I'm going to probably say that most weeks until I get to like the From Dust Till Dawn sequels, which I seem to have on DVD or something. Yeah. But <laughs> we've got two of my favourites. These are two great Woody films bananas and annie hall and uh, annie hall is actually in the a's we're still in the a's but um we thought we'd bring bananas forward just so we could do a double bill of uh, woody allen but where are my manners i haven't given introductions my name is luke little boy and i am joined by my co-host and very dear friend mr fletcher walton fletcher how are you doing hello luke i'm very well i watched annie hall today today was my first <laughs> netflix viewing experience i've never before watched a film on netflix on my computer and it was a very different yeah. experience for me. Of course, most people, I think, probably watch uh, Netflix on their TVs these days. That that would be a bit more Do you think like so? what you're used to, I assume. Yeah, well, definitely, definitely, without a shadow of a doubt. I think I think the vast majority of people would, would be watching on their TV. And I think that's probably then followed maybe by mobile and, and tablet. Um, I, I wouldn't be at all surprised if desktop laptops and tower computers and such came in sort of last place but I, I i i could be wrong there may be some blog articles online that are far more knowledgeable about the subject but i would wager that, that most people using netflix aren't watching on their laptop whenever wet hot american summer was revived on netflix and i still haven't watched mm-hmm. that and subsequently mr show came back didn't tune into that either but finally i, I, I didn't realize that mr show had come back yeah Is, did it really? they called it something wow. slightly different mixed reviews mrs from show what i thought originally i would do is i, I checked sky for annie hall and for bananas mm-hmm. annie, annie hall's on there i don't think bananas is so i looked for annie hall and for bananas and both were about three pounds fifty and i thought oh, for, i'm not sure i can then there's the click for a copy to your box and also delivered to your door. These things remind me how outdated I am. And meanwhile, the whole time, the whole time, the reason I didn't want to pay for these is I'm thinking, you know, I've got bananas on VHS off the telly at my parents' house. And the same with Annie Hall, the same with Hannah and her sisters and Take the Money and Run, I think, as well. Some of the early funny ones, definitely with Sleeper. And so that shows what a dinosaur I am when given the opportunity <laughs> to own in HD and have delivered to my home. I was thinking, no, no, I've got I've got it on a tape with three. I recorded it off Sky in 2002. That's my viewer <laughs> experience. But I think that I am, I'm representing the Luddites out there. So we're at, yeah, we're op- you, you we're at opposite ends of the scale and perhaps we need that plurality and approach. Everybody modern can stick with Luke Little Boy, but there are those of us with pitchforks and torches. <laughs> well, I tell you what, you are the epitome of um, Albie Max Singer from Annie Hall, <laughs> Woody Allen's character, who is certainly the, the one who refuses to change, refuses to uh, to bend with the times and refuses to uh, maybe bend with relationships. That, that You're the epitome of, uh, of Albie, I think, uh, for this episode. And I suppose that, in as many words, is a segue into the two films we're looking at today. Like I mentioned earlier on, these are in my DVD A to Z. Um, one thing I should mention on One Sensation 
conversationshot.com, I did recently upload my article on After Hours, which was the very first film in my DVD A to Z collection at the beginning of this year. Um, I did have a plan to uh, start writing an article about each of the films as we were talking about them. Not literally at the same time. Uh, I can't multitask. That would have been near impossible. But uh, certainly following up with our podcast with um, just a few words on them. Obviously, it's taken me a good six months to get the After Hours article up there, but uh, I did get married and move house in that time. So certainly I, I plan on um, running to catch up. Without any further ado, let's go ahead. I'll just uh, I'll just get cracking. So Bananas, like I said, 1971. Uh, for anyone who is not familiar, this is, of course, uh, a Woody Allen film. And uh, it's essentially, it's, it's one of his earlier ones. It's more off the wall. Woody Allen is, is playing the lead character, um, a chap called um, Fielding Mellish. He is he falls in love with a girl who uh, he wants to try and impress. He's not necessarily the most political of people, um, but he wants to try and impress this um, young, uh, sort of um, uh, politically motivated and, and politically aware girl. And uh, through a series of mishaps and misadventures, becomes the, the leader of, of a banana republic. And... Um, and uh, as, as such, an enemy of the United States uh, of America. Uh, so, like I said, it's earlier. It's earlier on. It's uh, it's one of his more slapstick films. There's a lot of Marx Brothers in there and all that kind of thing. We open. Uh, I've completely forgotten about the opening. Actually, we open with um, kind of like a sports commentary or like a sporting event. Mm. I'll set the premise up. I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself. But the premise is, of course, that we open with uh, with one president of of a South American country about to be assassinated. And then, of course, through Q, uh, a queue, coup, I should say, we're going to have um, a new... Uh, the, the rebels are going to take over and there'll be a new uh, a new um, regime in place. Is that what first and piqued your all... interest in it, Luke? Rebels? Because <laughs> of Star Wars? Yeah. Uh, no, 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 <laughs> just because of Woody Allen. And uh, I started... I should probably say autobiographically, I started with Annie Hall and then I just went both directions out in much the same way when I got into the Beach Boys I started with Pet Sounds and then thought okay that's great this is the best Beach Boys album how did they get here and where did they go from here mm. and and everything that leads up to Pet Sounds is an improvement and everything that goes away from Pet Sounds arguably is um, is, is a dip in quality but uh, you know Woody Allen I wouldn't say is exactly the same way but certainly Annie Hall is sort of the quintessential Woody Allen film I would argue and then I thought well what leads up to it and then and then what goes what go, comes after so um, Bananas as I say one of the earlier ones uh, we open with um, with uh, this, the, the rebels trying to, you know, assassinate the president, and it's in a sports commentary style um, with uh, a, a chap. I don't know the character, the sorry, the actor's name, but um, he's commentating on this shooting, this assassination attempt, and uh, it's very, very funny. We've got a lot of Latin music playing. There's some great lines uh, with from the commentator saying, "All around there are colourful flags and hats," which <laughs> I think is one of the more the more pointed observational comments that he makes, um, of course, at the uh, at the indigenous people who are there um you know cheering on the various uh, sides and factions so that's how we open it's immediately off the wall it's immediately um politically charged you know woody allen c- come annie hall which was a slightly more conventional um romantic comedy although that's not to put it down uh his films generally speaking were were a bit more mature and subdued this is a an angry young man i think uh, making a very very pointed and very very funny sort of satirical film but of course you know with the lead character that's just um a very misguided um buffoon who doesn't really know what he's doing 
and um, it, it really is just motivated by sex. Like in so many of the Woody Allen films, the character motivated by sex, or it's one of the motivations of, of people and characters in, in his films. Uh, and really just because he wants to get with the girl, he uh, finds himself the leader of a fictional uh, Banana Republic of uh, San Marcos. There's some great moments in it, but Fletch, what's your experience of Bananas? You, you mentioned that you had it recorded off the TV maybe many, many moons ago. So uh, is it one that you're you're familiar with? I've seen it a couple of times and I wasn't able to watch it this week. First time I saw it, my favourite scene involved sandwiches. Do you remember that bit? Well, I was just going to say, that is maybe my favourite scene in the whole film. Because Woody Allen, when he is the leader of uh, of, of the rebels, who uh, who I guess then become, you know, become the, the current... Uh, uh, establishment of the country. He uh, he goes into he so he maintains his New Yorker persona the whole way through, of course. And uh, one of the highlights of the film is certainly when he then goes into a restaurant. He needs to feed the troops. Yes, uh, coffee, please. Uh, I also want something to go. Yeah. You have um, you have any grilled cheese sandwiches? Yes, sir. Yeah. Well, let me have uh, a thousand and um, uh, 300 tuna fish and 200 bacon, lettuce and tomato sandwiches. You want the cheese on rye? Uh, 490 on rye. Let me have 110 uh, on whole wheat and 300 on white bread. Fernandez, one on roll. And one on roll. And the tuna? All the tuna on whole wheat and uh, all the bacon, lettuce and tomato. Let me have a toast. Right. And uh, what to drink? Uh, let me have 700 regular coffees, uh, 500 Cokes, and 1,000 7-Ups. And also, coleslaw for 900 men. Right. You want anything with these sandwiches? Uh, mayonnaise on the side. Right. Uh, and uh, it, it's little touches like that that make this... Um, Absolutely hilarious. It really is um, a very off-the-wall film. The introduction of the character as well, Woody Allen's character, is... I don't know if you remember his profession, Fletch, but he's um, a product tester. And that's how we're introduced to him as... It's an ad, essentially, for the executor. Oh, sorry, the execucizer, which is for the modern executive who's too busy to do exercise. And it's basically uh, kind of like a rowing machine seat at a desk. And then... There's all of these different uh, exercise activities that he can do on the desk. At one point, from the filing cabinet to his right, opens and people just start throwing basketballs at him. So he has to start dribbling basketballs <laughs> as he's trying to do the other things. And that's his job. He, he tests uh, these machines and uh, that's his whole thing. But um, it's very slapstick. Definitely has a lot of that, um, the, the Marx Brothers feel and, and, and that kind of thing, which I know were a big... Um, influence uh, influence on him. Uh, there's a great moment as well when we're introduced to his um, his sort of flat and apartment, and we could then suss out that he's as the audience. We can then see that he he's kind of a lonely guy, and I mean, he's, I think he's already said that to his his, his colleagues, but uh, we can tell that he's obviously going back to his apartment. He's got a frozen meal from the from the freezer, which he then proceeds. Doesn't make for good radio, I hasten to add. But he then proceeds; it just slips out of his hand, and uh, he he's like he's rolling all over the kitchen floor trying to pick up this frozen meal, which is just a solid block. There's a lot of um, funny, just little puns and speech gags. And when he when his girlfriend leaves him, which is what motivates him to go to San Marcos and really do something about this cause that she was so motivated by, that he he really should go and uh, and and help out. He's 
telling people, you know, that, that how much he misses her and, and how much she meant to her. And he says, uh, well, you know, we were in love. Well, I fell in love. She just stood there because <laughs> she didn't care because she didn't care for him as much. And uh, it's it's at, mo- at once a, a moment where we're very very sad and, and uh, for him, but it's also absolutely hilarious. There's some great moments as well where he's um, a great montage scene where he's actually training up. He's he's joined the rebels by this point and he's training up. And uh, at one point he has to learn camouflage and, uh, and you know, no one can see him or this kind of thing. He hides himself in uh, some undergrowth and then one of the rebels comes and just, you know, takes a whiz on him because he's so well hidden. <laughs> and uh, it, it's, it's little gags like that. It, it, he does some squats. They're doing squats in the montage. He goes through his squat and he can't get back up. Everyone else is going up and down very gracefully. He goes down once and that's it. And then we cut to the next scene where everyone's... Um, in a big queue to pick up their dinner, pick up their lunch, the gruel or whatever it is that they're being served. And then Woody Allen comes into frame, uh, still at the, the bottom of the squat, like sort of waddling along. Yeah, it's um, it's definitely uh, different. If you're more familiar with later Woody Allen, like I watched Cafe Society the other day as well, which is obviously the one that came out last year. In my opinion, a very good film. But they're, they're, you know, these days, if you're, more, if you're familiar more with the modern Woody Allen, it's not the slapstick side of things that, that you get. And uh, it, it's refreshing sometimes to go back to films like Bananas, like Sleeper, uh, and get some of that back and, and just remember sort of where those roots were um, in the very early 70s and the late 60s. But, I mean, there's still elements that are throughout Woody Allen's art that, that you know, we all know what kind of characters Woody Allen plays and what kind of characters he writes. You know, in, in this, for example, um, Foodling Mellish, the, the character he's playing, is still a neurotic in this case, blue collar worker. Uh, so he's still definitely got that New York uh, neuroticism thing going on. Like I said, and, and like you, you wisely uh, reminded me that you know at one point when he has to feed, feed the army, he goes in just to order, uh, like go, goes to a deli just to order yeah. like three thousand grilled cheese sandwiches. Yeah. <laughs> um, maybe the final act, and I can't, I don't know how much of the, this one you can remember. The final act of the film is uh, a, it's in a it's in a courtroom because he's finally gone back to America. And uh, he's been set up by the rebels. You know, he shouldn't really be the leader, but they've set him up there to be a bit of a fool guy. Goes back to America, and uh, he's obviously an enemy of the state. And uh, he there's a courtroom scene in the, the final act, which is absolutely fantastic. Fielding Mellish, the president of San Marcos, goes on trial tomorrow for fraud, inciting to riot, conspiracy to overthrow the government, and using the word thighs in mixed company. Please rise. Court is now in session. Judge Seymour Watson presiding. The people versus Fielding Mellish. I object, Your Honor. This trial is a travesty. It's a travesty of a mockery, of a sham, of a mockery, of a travesty, of two mockeries, of a sham. I move for a mistrial. Do you realize there's not a single homosexual on that jury? Yes, there is. Oh, really? Which one? Is it the, the big guy at the end? And uh, Mellish, basically, he's trying to defend himself against more and more witnesses who are just giving the most damning testimony. Uh, at one point, a Miss America pageant winner comes in uh, and, who's never met him before and uh, and just uh, completely lays into him. There's a black woman who comes in who's, you know, sort of older and sort of quite abrasive. And she says that she's J. Edgar Hoover in disguise. We as the audience are definitely supposed to think... <laughs> believe that she is uh and she basically says uh oh someone says why do you look like this and she just says i have many enemies yeah so i I need to (laughs) i need to be in disguise i remember that from when i first watched it and at the time found it a bit too oblique for me bananas more than his later 70s output is 
a little bit like the old 40s film Hells of Poppin. Pop culture references are so specific and timely that they mm. went over my head. I, I knew who Ed, uh, J. Edgar Hoover was, of course, but there's, uh, like, in your introduction, you mentioned the commentator played by Howard Cosell, which isn't anything oh, yeah. that we can really grab onto. Now, I knew about Howard Cosell from w- Wide World of Sports from Better Off Dead, but it's all secondhand, a little bit like our in uh, the, the way that, for some people, they consume American culture through the prism of The Simpsons. Their first interaction with many things, like, for instance, Matlock or MacGyver, is through The Simpsons. Really good point. And as we yeah. talked about with Animal House and Anchorman, none of us have ever seen Saturday Night Live. We know all of its no. actors, but whereas people who had watched it in the late 90s when they saw Anchorman will have immediately responded, oh, that's his Robert Goulet impersonation, it was much more difficult for us to get hold of that kind of first-hand information. Mm. So, yeah, there, there's a lot, it's got many different types of comedy through it. The satire is sometimes so specific that to a modern UK audience, there isn't much chance of penetration. It also has Mm. the problem of a very specific political satirical basis. The 60s and 70s were uh, a time of many revolutionaries and many Mm -hmm. left-wing terror groups moving into the 70s with the Red Army Faction, Bader-Meinhof Complex, the IRA, ETA, and in the preceding decades... Fidel Castro in Cuba, Che Guevara throughout South America. So th- these, I suppose the equivalent now would be a satire a bit more globo-political than Four Lions, but taking the same route. Islamic terrorism, yeah. Islamic fundamentalism, pastiches of ISIS, Israel and Palestine. And maybe in 30 years' time, viewers would check out a film shot in 2017 and wonder, you know, this is far too specific to its period i can't i need a history book to better understand it because there is a little bit of that i think with bananas aside oh god yeah yeah, yeah. in league with the pop culture references but there's a lot i like about Mm. bananas i enjoyed it the first time i saw it only caught it a couple of times it's one of the early funny ones from woody allen i'm interested in in the relationships he had formed and which he was using at that time louise lasser was his muse during the late mm-hmm. 60s and early 70s, they worked together six or seven times. There was a break after everything. You always wanted to know about sex, but were afraid to ask. Then she came back mm-hmm. for a cameo in one of his 80s pictures, uh, Stardust Memories or Radio Days, one of those lots. But at the time, he was using Louise Lasser. Then he moved on to Diane Keaton and then Mia all through the 80s. And obviously, there was the break in the 90s. And I don't think he's ever properly found a replacement muse in the way that he did with those three women. At the time of Bananas, he was well into his writing relationship with Mickey Rose. They did one of my favourite pieces of comedy in any form, The Moose. Are you familiar with that one? No, 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 I'm Which not. Begins, Please go on. Well, Woody, is, Woody was a stand-up. He didn't consider himself a particularly good stand-up, nor mm-hmm. did he enjoy it. He was like Larry David in that way. And, of course, there are many, many parallels. And watching Annie Hall felt like yeah. a, an embryonic or rather a 70s version of Curb Your Enthusiasm in lots of ways. Yeah, so yeah, when Woody yeah, was a stand-up, much. he and Mickey Rose worked together writing for each other. They had both written for Sid Caesar along with Mel Brooks. The moose bit starts with... I shot a moose once. I was hunting upstate New York and I shot a moose and I strap him onto the fender of my car and I'm driving home along the West Side Highway. But what I didn't realise was that the bullet did not penetrate the moose. It just creased his scalp, knocking him unconscious. And I'm driving through the Holland Tunnel, and the moose woke up. 
So I'm driving with a live moose on my fender. And the moose is signaling for a turn, you know? And there's a law in New York State against driving with a conscious moose on your fender Tuesdays, Thursdays, and Saturdays. And I'm very panicky. And then it hits me. Some friends of mine are having a costume party. I'll go. I'll take the moose. I'll ditch him at the party. It wouldn't be my responsibility. So I drive up to the party, and I knock on the door. The moose is next to me. My host comes to the door. I say, hello. You know the Solomons. We enter. The moose mingles. Did very well. Scored. Some guy was trying to sell him insurance for an hour and a half. 12 o'clock comes. They give out prizes for the best costume of the night. First prize goes to the Berkowitzes, a married couple dressed as a moose. The moose comes in second. The moose is furious. He and the Berkowitzes lock antlers in the living room. They knock each other unconscious. Now I figure here's my chance. I grab the moose, strap him on my fender, and shoot back to the woods. But I got the Berkowitzes. So I'm driving along with two Jewish people on my fender. And there's a law in New York State. Tuesdays, Thursdays, and especially Saturday. The following morning, the Berkowitzes wake up in the woods in a moose suit. Mr. Berkowitz is shot, stuffed, and mounted at the New York Athletic Club. And the joke is on them because it's restricted. Him and Mickey wrote What's Up Tiger Lily, which is the pastiche in which Woody overdubs an existing yeah. uh, Chinese or Japanese film quite underseen. Mm -hmm. The pictures he was making at the end of the 60s and the beginning of the 70s were broad, as you say. Uh, Marx Brothers influenced. Plenty of slapstick. Conceptual in, in the way that you see in Annie Hall, because what I was reminded watching Annie Hall today, not only does he break the fourth wall several times, but he drops in funny subtitles, like in The Imposters. Also, there's an animated sequence. There is, yeah. Lots of different forms. When we think of Annie Hall, we presume Academy Award winner, nominated for the Big Five, won three or four of them, shot by Gordon Willis, austere, New York. It's about neurotic Jews. It's a very adult sex comedy. But throughout all of it is shot through a very playful approach to the medium. So anyway, What's Up Tiger Lily, followed by Take the Money and Run, which, I yeah, they, they did that one together. Bananas was the last time that they worked together. And so this leads me to one of my first big questions for you. I think that Woody Allen has always worked best when he's written with somebody else in the same way that you and I probably temper each other enough and smooth the rough edges. This is Woody's films with collaborators. What's Up Tiger Lily, Take the Money and Run and Bananas, all with Mickey Rose. Sleeper, Annie Hall, Manhattan, a Manhattan murder mystery, all with Marshall Brickman. And Bullets Over Broadway with Doug McGrath. I think those, now what's that, one, two, three, four, five, 
six. That's eight films. I think six of those are in his top ten. And when you consider, mm-hmm. and I was going to mention this earlier, but consuming Woody Allen is a little bit like with The Simpsons. We talk about his early funny films and we say early Woody Allen, mid-period mid Woody Allen. He's making a film a year and he's done that for 45 years. Yeah, so it's insane. when we it talk really about is. where he matured, yeah, he matured. He matured 40 years ago to make his hit rate is like any director we enjoy. Every decade he makes two or three really good films. It's just that, unlike everybody else, he makes another six or seven. Five or six you barely remember being released, like The Curse of the Jade Scorpion or Hollywood Ending. Some of them didn't even get UK releases at the cinema. So what do you think yeah, about his best didn't... work being with a collaborator? Yeah, I, I don't think you're wrong. I think I think in most instances in life, uh, things work best with a collaborator. I think that there's something to be said about um, collaboration, like you say, tempering and smoothing over the rough edges, challenging each other, Some sometimes just filtering stuff out you know, improving upon uh, what you are doing. And I, I really do think that, that there's probably something to be said there. I think the hit list you just gave as well, just ascertaining that, you know, how, how many of the films that have, have been co-written are in our kind of fictional top 10. And maybe we should maybe we should do one as well. I think as well, a lot of people forget about the collaborators in the early years too. For example, you mentioned uh, Mickey Rose, who he wrote, um, he wrote uh, Bananas with and uh, a lot of his other early stuff. And, you know, he died not long ago. It was like 2013, I think. I'm just getting up now. Yeah, 2013. And uh, you don't you don't always remember that these films were co-written. I think, mm. uh, you know, Woody Allen's got his own brand, hasn't he? And uh, he's um, certainly considered a writer-director. And uh, it's very easy to forget that a lot of this early stuff, you know, like you say, was, was co-written. And we're so, f- so, yeah, we're so really far removed from a time when he did collaborate. Even now, we're 22 years since Bullets Over Broadway, which, as I recall, it was better reviewed than some of his contemporary films at the time and was a big, big deal and sent him into a period in the middle of the 90s off the back of Manhattan Murder Mystery, which, as you will know, and the viewers may not, but I will tell them now, consisted of offcuts from Annie Hall. Annie Hall was originally pitched as a three-hour meditation on various grand themes, but had at, at its centre a whodunit. Yeah. They excised that, came back to it about, well, 15 years later, I suppose. Um, but after Bullets Over Broadway, for which Diane Veist won Best Supporting Actress, Mighty Aphrodite followed, for which Mira took Best Supporting Actress. Everyone Says I Love You was very well received. Uh, I was going to say, when was it's, it's a little bit like uh, Prince albums in the 90s or whatever. You know, like as soon as one comes out, every, everyone says it's a return to form. Mm. And <laughs> uh, they can't all be a return to form. Like, did he lose it or not? And you're right, I think it's from sort of 94, 95 onwards that you... Uh, the late 90s are a bit of a blur to me about what, what came out in that time. But certainly, I think Match Point, which was 2005, I'm just getting up now. Uh, ever since then, I think a lot of these have been declared as a return to form. Vicky Cristina Barcelona, certainly 2008 was. Uh, I think Whatever Works, though I like it because it's got Larry David, that slipped under the radar a little bit. Mm. The notion we've been dancing around is that he is a brand, he's a genre in himself. And like any genre, mm-hmm. there will be good films and bad films. It's unusual to find it in the work of one man. But he is a one-man mm-hmm. one genre. And it's a genre which began with frequent collaborations to critical acclaim and is now uh, the pure artistry of a single man's preoccupations. Mm-hmm. Sometimes that's interesting. And I saw Café Society very recently as well. 
I thought that was fine. Yeah, I thought it was fine. It wasn't up there with Midnight in Paris or Blue Jasmine, which I thought were, were, were two yeah. real standouts. I know. Midnight in Paris is is one of the... And Woody Allen does this. This is why I do... Why I'm such a fan of his. Uh, like Annie Hall, Midnight in Paris is an example where some of the ideas hit me in the gut. They're ideas that I can then take into my life and that, and that stick with me. Midnight in Paris is very much about the idea of nostalgia. The, the way we choose to indulge in nostalgia can be dangerous. And what you're supposed to sort of take away from life is really and truly you should always live in the moment and you should always try and move forward. And it's very nice to think about the past, whatever it might be. But ultimately, you're living a life and, you know, there's people in your life that are important to you. And you should focus on those those things that you, you do have control over and that you can enjoy in the moment, in the now, whilst you're living on the earth, rather than always wishing you were somewhere else. Mm. And Midnight in Paris was very powerful and really hit me in the gut, in much the same way Annie Hall did. And we'll, we'll get to the, the meat and bones of Annie Hall in a minute, but... Certainly, I watched Annie Hall when I was 16, 17. It immediately showed me what mature relationships on film can look like. Mm. And a a lot of the ideas, little things like how at the end he realises that she's going to see The Sorrow and the Pity, the film that he introduced her to right at the beginning of the... And that even, even though you may break up with people, little bits of you rub off on the other person. The fact that, you know, you can have lots of relationships in your life, but you can't always recreate the same things again in the same way that he has the, he's, he has the, he's falling over and laughing when he can't get the lobster in the pot with Annie Hall. And later on, he's trying to do it with someone else and she just doesn't care and doesn't get it at all and doesn't get any of the jokes he's trying to do. Mm. So again, Annie Hall really hit me in the gut and introduced these, these lots of ideas in my life, which I, I then, as a 16 year old boy, then took away and in, into adulthood and have, you know, served me well generally over time. So um, Woody Allen, like you say, is a genre to himself. And when he's at his best, he's uh, he's dealing with ideas that are interesting and engaging. And uh, I know that that's always going to be hit and miss, especially if you're making a film every year. But uh, good God, um, he's punched me in the gut a few times with, uh, with, a, with a lot of his films. And I don't know how he speaks of his collaborators. No, I should have done some more. I didn't realise we were going to go into that direction on the conversation. I should have done a bit no, of I research. Just, I, I, didn't, it, no. I didn't mean for the purpose of the podcast, I... Uh... I just meant in your life, have you noticed whether he, as we say, Mickey Rose went only comparatively recently and I don't remember many testimonials, but at the same time, I've never seen Alan consciously distance himself from those people that he worked with. And it is interesting to me that after writing solo for such a long time, he chose to do Bullets Over Broadway with Douglas McGrath, who at the time was not a well-known writer, uh, writer, director, actor, and still is relatively obscure. So when watching Bananas as well, uh, I was reminded right towards the end of the film of a theory I used to have as a kid about art in general and, and specifically about, about records. And I always used to have this theory that the last track on a band's album would often indicate the direction they were going in for the next album. And, uh, and for example, it doesn't always work, but for example, The Clash ends with Police and Thieves, uh, which is a reggae number, and that kind of indicated things like White Man, Hammersmith Palais and, and the, the next singles that they were going to have. Uh, Public Image Limited's first edition album, their first album, ends with a track, I can't remember what it's called, but it's more experimental and sparse and dub-like, which certainly indicates what they then do with Metal Box. 
And the examples go on. I think there's a, the, uh, there's a, a track at the end of uh, Frank Black's album, The Cult of Ray, which sounds a little more of a country ballad, which kind of indicates what he's then going to do with his follow-up band, Frank Black and the Catholics. Well, it's uh, it's a bit of a convoluted point now, but uh, it, and the build-up is, is way, way, way bigger than it needs to be. But there's a moment in Bananas towards the end when he's actually reflecting and he's looking out at the river across to Manhattan and it very much looks like something you'd see in Annie Hall and then later Manhattan. It's definitely an indication of that, of, you know, a, a plot that is to be taken seriously and, 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 uh, and purely set in New York and in Manhattan. Mm. Embryonic and it's at an that stage. Yeah. Embryonic at that stage. Now, of course, it's not lost on me that the next film was everything you want to know about sex but were afraid to ask, which is a series of vignettes set in all different time periods <laughs> about the various aspects of um, aspects of, uh, of, of of well of the condition of sex, and then of course after that we have Sleeper, which is in the future of all places. Love and Death is uh, in uh, in sort of eighteenth uh, century Russia, uh, and then it, and then we finally get to Annie Hall. You're making him so, sound like Bill and Ted. Uh, and certainly the best time and place is now with Annie Hall, I think. And what a film. Uh, like I said, this was the one that I saw when I was 16, 17 years old. Made a huge impression on me. Absolutely punched me in the gut about what relationships um, are like in reality. And it's it's very melancholy. And it, it really does, you know, ultimately, you know, what is this film about? It's about what relationships mean to us, I think. And uh, I think, you know, the conclusion of the film very much is... They're kind of kooky, they're kind of funny, but ultimately we all need them. You know, they don't always end well, but in, in whatever way you look at it, we all need them and we all need to think that we can be happy and we all need to have that human interaction to survive. And that's what it's all about. And I think this film, as soon as it opens, we have, if you remember, we have the credits which open with no music at all. Uh, and I think this is immediately a film to be taken more seriously. It is a comedy, but... Ultimately, we have this cold opening, really, just after the credits uh, roll, where we have Woody Allen completely breaking the fourth wall, talking to us, the audience, introducing himself and his character, and, of course, opening with um, those jokes, like the Groucho Marx joke, oh, I wouldn't want to be part of a club that would have someone like me as a member. Uh, and really, I think immediately we're, we're being told this is a film to be taken a bit more seriously because, you know, we're... we're it's a performance piece, but he's really putting it out there right from the off, isn't he? That this is something, these are some ruminations on life. And I want you to come along with me on this journey as we, as we, as we have a think about them together as an audience. And I'm going to put on a show for you. Like you said earlier on, Fletch, there's a bit of animation. You know, there's a lot of breaking the fourth wall that it really is, um, you know, it's not completely grounded in reality. But having said all of that, it's... It's um, some musings on 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 the human condition, and uh, it's very upfront about that from from the beginning. Uh, so I think it really does set the tone from, from right from the off. I think it's a bold opening, but it does immediately hark back to, as you've said, the formative comedy influences. But wonderfully combines mm -hmm. highbrow and lowbrow in a way that others aren't able to. Something I've always mm -hmm. enjoyed about Woody Allen is that he's into sports. That's verboten. In this country, comedians, actors of any standing, if they're to be taken seriously, they don't talk about football. They might be allowed to mention cricket, all the posh boys, Stephen Fry, Hugh Laurie, Mitchell and Webb. 
maybe rugby. And meanwhile, Woody Allen is definitely out of a kind of a working class environment, an, an environment that we can associate with. There's a part in the film where when he's with Janet Margolin's character and he says, I'm uptight because I want to watch the Knicks on TV. And he's always been such a cheerleader for baseball and basketball. And the bit at the beginning combines those two nicely when he says, and I'm reading here, but he says, the other important joke for me is one that's usually attributed to Groucho Marx, but I think it appears originally in Freud's wit. Uh, The same device is used in the Philosopher's Football Match by Monty Python. Do you know that sketch? Yeah, yeah, I do. And I find this delicious. I try to apply it in my own writing and in my own jokes with people. The commentator says... Hegel is arguing that the reality is merely an a priori adjunct of non-naturalistic ethics. Kant, via the categorical imperative, is holding that ontologically it exists only in the imagination, and Marx is claiming it was offside. <laughs> and that's, for me, that's the combination of the high and the low. Well, there may be no score, but there's certainly no lack of excitement here. As you can see, Nietzsche has just been booked for arguing with the referee. He accused Confucius of having no free will, and Confucius, he say, name go in book. And this is Nietzsche's third booking in four games. Is the genius yeah. of that sketch and of Woody Allen in general. And I, I don't see it in modern comedies as much as I like Judd Apatow. We've talked extensively about his vital work as a producer, as a talent spotter. But in Annie Hall, you know, Alvy Singer is a man who, while he enjoys sports on television, also wants to see Bergman films at the pictures and keep going to see The Sorrow and the Pity by Offals. Yeah, I think again, three man, times again. in the film. Yeah, <laughs> they see it at least three times, yeah. And I, it's something very specific to the working-class Jewish New York upbringing. I, I marvelled at it. Um, yeah, I completely agree. Some of the stand-up as well, uh, when we because he is a comedian, and like I mentioned, are we supposed to believe it's autobiographical? I think we are. It has an apologetic air but also one of explanation. The, the whole film is obsessed with analysis at a time that, that is, in, in a way, I think the interaction with psychotherapists and analysts was a relatively new thing for the upper working class and the middle class. And then in the California mm. scenes, there's, I'll steal your thunder here, but the Jeff Goldblum cameo when he says, I've forgotten my mantra. Yeah, all yeah, all yeah. of those little bits which speak to the culture at the time. But I do like how open-hearted Woody is when he speaks to strangers and they come back to him. Well, and we get that right at the beginning as well when he's uh, in the queue for the film and uh, he's listening to that very loud couple behind him. What I want to give for a large sock as with horse manure in it. What do you do when you get stuck on a movie line with a guy like this behind you? Wait a minute, why can't I give my maddening. opinion? It's a free country. He can give you. Do you have to give it so loud? I mean, aren't you ashamed to pontificate like that? And, and the funny part of it is, Marshall McLuhan, you don't know anything about Marshall McLuhan's oh, really? work. Really? I happen to teach a class at Columbia called TV, Media, and Culture. So I think that my insights into Mr. McLuhan, well, have a great deal of validity. Oh, do you? Yeah. Well, that's funny because I happen to have Mr. McLuhan right here. So, so yeah, just let me, let me, let me, come over here a second. Oh, Tell I, heard, him. I heard what you were saying. You, you know nothing of my work. You mean my whole fallacy is wrong. How you ever got to teach a course in anything is totally amazing. Boy, if life were only like this. I think that sums the film up. If life were only like this. And at the end, of course, he's writing a play about the film, about his relationship with Annie Hall, where he actually gets... He sees the uh, actors rehearsing the play, uh, and one of them's playing Annie, one of them's playing his role. And at the end, 
of course, we've only just had the scene in LA where she refuses to come home with him and says, you know, I'm, I'm staying out here, this is what I'm doing. But of course, in the play, she says, no, I'm going to come back with you. Uh, he gets that ending, the perfect ending, uh, which links back to the beginning. Boy, if li- life were only like this. And of course, I, I think he's always trying to... It, it's kind of about trying to idealise life, but through through performance or art, whatever it might be. But ultimately, of course, we the, the film tr- truly concludes with life is flawed. That's just the way it goes. Yeah. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Whatever works. The kind of the kind of you know the recent film with Larry David. Whenever I hear that, though, whenever I think of. <laughs> Whenever I think of the title, Whatever Works, I feel as though Alan's response is, do whatever works for you. It may be dating a series of women 30 or 40 years your junior. Because again, in that, isn't it Larry David and Evan Rachel Wood? Yeah, it is actually. And no one looks more like an old man than Larry David. But Larry David has looked like an old man since 1983. Yeah, yeah, he absolutely has. Whereas Woody Allen, in contrast, and this is the, I like to call it the Alan Bennett, Woody Allen trick, wherein Mm -hmm. when you're 30, you dress like you're about 43, and then you look about 43 until you're 70-ish. When Throughout the film, I never feel that Alvi is angry or accusatory, and he truly does seem to be interested in explaining and further analysis of his own faults. And I'd I'd like us to consider High Fidelity, one of my favourite films. And as I say that, I realise it's true. I don't watch it very often. In fact, I've got your copy of it. You left it in the... You know, you left it with us when you took off. What, my high, high Fidelity DVD? Yeah, you left it in the player 18 months really? ago. Yeah. I could do with that back. <laughs> <laughs> well, lucky I'm coming to visit. Um, it's, it's it's one of my favourites too. Yeah. And uh, I'm a bit ashamed that I hadn't uh, hadn't uh, realised that that was missing from the collection. Regular listener James Kennedy reminded me, no, actually brought my attention to a, a beautiful snippet in the scene where Rob is imagining the kind of hell he'd like to wreak upon Tim Robbins' character, Ian. You know, when he says, get your patchouli stank out of my goddamn... You know, and then there's another yeah, cut yeah, where yeah. Todd Luizzo smashes him in the face with a phone, teeth fly everywhere, then they... It's a fantasy within a fantasy <laughs> yeah, within a fantasy, yeah. isn't it? It's but like sort of three what, layers deep. If we consider High <laughs> Fidelity, which is very similar, it's a brilliant, well-observed romantic comedy with a slightly unsympathetic character at its core and a narration and spots where, for instance, the Bruce Springsteen cameo. And in Annie Hall, we've got an example there of someone who's only acted a couple of times. Um, Paul Simon's in that and he's in One Trick Pony. Well, yeah, that's his own, which he wrote and directed. Yeah, it's his own thing. And, you know, most people have done something. There's There's musicians who have acting as a side gig like Chris Christopherson, Jared Leto does it the other way around. Then there's people who've been in a few projects like Bob Dylan. But Springsteen, uh, to the best of my knowledge, has never really done anything other than dropping himself into that cameo in High Fidelity. But my point is that in High Fidelity, I find Rob quite unsympathetic. It takes him a long time to realise that he's been a dickhead for a lot of his life, that uh, he has been egocentric, that his concerns are petty. And I don't think Alvy's like that. When Rob's explaining himself, Rob played by John Cusack, of course, I don't think the audience is meant to be behind him all of the time. And and this isn't to say that one film is better than the other, but I like the difference in approach with Alvi. He really, maybe it might be a Jewish thing, going up to strangers and saying, well, this is what I think, what would you do under these circumstances? How can I? And, Mm. you know, he talks to that one couple, how have you done it? You look like good people. Well, I'm incredibly shallow and I don't have a thought in my head. And I'm the same. <laughs> I always feel I'm on Alvi's side. So you mentioned as well that he's 
will analyze himself right from the off and doubt himself and and wonder maybe i maybe i'm being irrational or maybe i could improve myself in some way or maybe i'm thinking about this the wrong way so which instantly makes him a bit more sympathetic now I think that Annie's journey in the film is very, very clear. You know, she starts, she actually tells him what her journey's been. She says, oh, you got me out of my apartment, got me singing. Uh, and then we can see as well that she, she of course, then goes to L.A., stays in L.A., is open to new things, uh, trying drugs or new relationships, meeting new people, which Alfie um, just says he's not going to do. Mm. And uh, he you know, turns down drugs, for example. He doesn't want to go to LA. It actually makes him sort of hyperventilate and brings him out of fever. Yeah. So he doesn't want to change. She says, you're like New York. You're an island unto yourself. He doesn't really have... Um, even his friend uh, Rob, of course, goes to LA and becomes a sitcom star. I think uh, Alvy's the only character that doesn't change as such. He doesn't really have a journey apart from he kind of has a wry smile about life hmm. by the end and just thinks, oh, well, I guess we've all touched each other in some way and uh, we all have to... And there's a wonderful conclusion, of course, at the end where he says, uh, there's the joke about um, Dr. Doctor, my brother, yeah. uh, my brother thinks he's a chicken and you know, well, Doctor, you know, what are you going to do about it? Whatever. And he says, uh, oh, well, I'd love to do something about it, but I want the eggs. Hmm. Uh, and uh, he it sort of said, you know, the conclusion, of course, is that... Um, you know, relationships are like that. They're absurd, but ultimately, we all need the eggs. We all we, we all need to. We all know that we don't. These maybe aren't going to go anywhere, but we ultimately all need the eggs, and that's what we want. So, yeah, I don't know if Alfie really has much of a journey apart from that. Other characters definitely seem to go from point A to point, you know, B and then C. Um, Alvi, I think he's the only character that refuses to change, refuses to leave New York, refuses to yeah, uh, change who he is. You're right, but it's in such an, an enjoyable, benign way. I don't. It is, yes. It doesn't ever. It's feel not a like, criticism. Yeah, no, it, it doesn't ever feel like as a character that well, you know whether he's an unlikable protagonist or whatever. But as the protagonist, it, he's certainly set in his ways. But he's. Uh... He doesn't expect other people to tolerate him, I suppose. When they realise yeah. they should break up, they agree to break up. And there's no bitterness to him. We, we see it much earlier on with his father, where <laughs> where his mother says, the maid is stealing, and the father says, she's coloured. What else can she do? She should take from us. Who could else she take from? We can't have her coming around here. She's taking our things. Oh, but yeah. she has less than us. She lives in Harlem. You know how it is for them. And at the end of the day, I think that his conclusion is, well, I didn't want to change, but I, I guess, you know, I can understand why she wants to do something else. He's mm. never bitter. You know, she says, you're the one that got me out and got me singing. You know, he could very easily, in another kind of film, maybe even Rob in High Fidelity would have reacted this way of, I'm the one that got, got you out of the apartment, got you singing, you know, what? Yeah. and now you've thrown it all back in my face. He doesn't do that at all. Mm. And uh, apart from a few wobbles where, you know, she then is, is start her world is getting bigger and she's starting to do adult education and he's starting to get a bit jealous maybe of the teacher that she's uh, she's working with. By and large, she doesn't really hold her back and doesn't try to repress her mm. and uh, is quite happy for her to, 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 to get a bigger world and that kind of thing. Other people may interpret that differently, but, you know, I don't think he's ever a bitter character or anything like that. There's Go no on. surprise on his part when his actions lead to someone wanting to spend less time with him. He, That's true. If he reacts with jealousy to the relationship she has with the adult learning lecturer, he knows that on a long enough time scale, she'll leave him. But he, yeah, he's not bitter about it. I, I don't know. It's, it's just it's the way it's delivered. 
It's all funny. It's all it's all funny to me. So damning of L- of L.A. as well, because um, oh yeah, beautiful in that way. Yeah, <laughs> it is. Yeah, well, because obviously Al Alvi is New York, but he is more more represented by New York, the Jewish intellectual, and. He, you know, at one point he even says the the rest of the country see us as, you know, Jewish left wing, you know, revolutionaries or something. L.A., of course, when they eventually do go to L.A. and they meet Paul Simon's character, for example, it's merciless in how shallow and vacuous the place is, how everything's fake. Yeah, the opening Uh, gags, the bit where the bloke said it goes notion, concept, idea. Do you remember that part? And, and then I, that becomes that becomes an idea. <laughs> yeah, uh, I would have thought this would be one of your favourite bits, coming as it does from the uh, the Vic and Bob sketch. But yeah, the, the bloke uh, when they're talking about me- taking meetings. You know, I work at a marketing agency. We're not immune to some of these kind of conversations. Mm-hmm. Where yeah. <laughs> you know, I've had I've had conversations like that. You know, maybe even this week, his friend Rob, who's obviously by this point uh, writing his own sitcom and starring in his own sitcom, the laughter is all canned, and they're they're editing that in. Give me a little laugh here, a little chuckle here, and then a big roar of laughter now. Uh, and also, just th- th- there's a great moment which is completely uh, ADR'd, dropped in. You know, it's not not in the scene. It was obviously recorded later. But when they park up at the party, Woody Allen says, uh, "Oh, we're actually going to walk to the house. I don't feel like I've touched pavement since we got to LA." Yeah. yeah. Uh, again, because you know, New York obviously you walk places. LA you tend to drive. So yeah, it, absolutely merciless um, about LA. I want you to see my house. I live right next to Hugh Hefner's house, Max. Let's me use the jacuzzi. And the women, Max. They're like the women in Playboy magazine, only they can move their arms and legs. You know, I can't get over that this is really Beverly Hills. The architecture's really consistent, isn't it? French next to Spanish, next to Tudor, next to Japanese. God, it's so clean out here. It's because they don't throw their garbage away. They make it into television shows. Oh, come on, Max. Give us a break, will you? It's Christmas. You know, it was snowing. It was snowing and really grey in New York, naturally. I'm kidding. Nice. Santa Claus will have sunstroke. Max, there's no crime. There's no mugging. There's no economic crime, you know. But there's there's ritual, religious cult murders. You know, there's wheat germ killers out here. Los Angeles has never realised that the whole of the world thinks it sucks. I don't know. This is barely germane to anything, but I wanted to bring your attention to a tiny thing that I noticed in those LA sequences. The establishing shots, they pass the theater which is playing Messiah of Evil. Mm-hmm. This is incredibly obscure, but it's something that I'd researched about a year and a half ago. That's by Hike and Cats. Isn't that mad? Right. Okay. I, I didn't even yeah. know if it got. Why would that be on at a revival of cinema Graffiti. in nineteen seventy-six? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Frame. Willard Hike and Gloria Cats. Lucasfilm Perennials, their very early unknown horror picture has a marquee appearance in Annie Hall. I, I liked what you said about Tony Roberts' character adding the canned laughter as a mm. counterpoint to Alfie as a stand-up, someone who has to earn the laughs in front of a big, big audience. He agonises about it throughout the film. And if you go to the promised land of Hollywood, just put it in right there you can just drop it in at the at the touch of a button and there's, mm. there's a couple of nice cameos there a very um a very early role for tracy walter and beverly d'angelo is the sitcom actress beverly d'angelo from vacation for instance and played lurley lumpkin on the simpsons yeah. one of the fun things about watching annie hall you don't even need the credits to tell you spot so many well-known people sigourney weaver's right there at the end as one of the many willowy leggy statuesque females that Woody surrounds himself with. Oh, I did not know that. 
and uh, another scathing criticism of LA when Tony Roberts goes to bail Woody out and he says twins 16 year olds imagine the mathematical possibilities <laughs> it may made me cringe a bit that that line and uh I roll, you and with, I, it. I roll with it it was a different time just... yeah well we talk about it a lot don't we and um I don't want to get into sort of a social political discussion on the podcast but I do often think you can't always put the past on trial as such you know we can learn from it we can move on and we can uh, you know think we're better and more enlightened or whatever but uh, <laughs> there are moments where you know it's, it doesn't feel that the film's that old and then you remember that it was the 70s and what a different country that was back then <laughs> it's base and announcing it in cinema doesn't endorse that view and that's we, true we, we talked about it in Animal House when he accidentally shags a 13 year old it will happen every time we watch a 70s picture. One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, for instance. The protagonist yeah. is in there for stat rape. I'm about to watch the original version of The Beguiled for the first time, and I, th- I think there's, <laughs> I think that'll uh, leave me questioning plenty of uh, plenty of things there. But uh, Of course, not set in the 70s, but made in the 70s. Mm. I was talking earlier on about how Annie Hall left an impression on me as a 16, 17-year-old boy and really punched me in the gut and, and taught me a bit about relationships and the various attitudes you can have. And this is a much lighter note, I hasten to add, but I I was just jotting down a list as I went along of, of, a, of a few of the things that are tropes you get in a lot of modern rom-coms. Mm. Uh, Annie Hall does it in its own way very, very well. And uh, I suppose further on from some of the scenes I mentioned, like the lobster scene when he's trying to recreate the same thing he did with a previous girlfriend with a new one and it just completely falls flat. Yeah, and that kind the of second thing. time I noted this as well. I think he repeats a joke and she says, what does that mean? And his response is, mean? Yeah. Does everything have to mean something? In a way it does, but at the same time, you can just do stuff because it's funny. And uh, it's, it's being lost. I think it... Uh, it's being lost because we are placing ideology over aesthetic. Yeah, joking about sleeping with 16-year-olds. In practice, that's probably an abhorrent thing to do. There's nothing wrong with joking about it. To suggest, sorry, here is a New Yorker who's gone to Los Angeles, starry-eyed, and has completely fallen into the culture. But continue with what you were what you were saying. No, 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 that's a really good point, actually, quite well made uh, there. And uh, yeah, you're right, we shouldn't be too knee-jerk about this stuff. It's At the end of the day, it's a character and it's a point of view, and that's... Uh, you know, that's we have to believe in the character and uh, the make-believe world we're seeing on screen. So, uh, but yeah, there are some great moments, and um, some of them are quite iconic. Some of them are famous. And you know, for example, after they've actually played tennis for the first time, he's got they've gone back uh, together just to have a glass of wine on the roof terrace, and they're obviously talking about. He's saying, "Oh, you like photography," and they start to talk about it. But there's the subtext, of course, the thing that the characters are truly saying, but uh, not saying out loud. And yeah. you, we get the translation, the subtitles on the screen. Oh, I hope he doesn't think I'm a complete idiot. And then they're, they're coming up with increasingly complex and highbrow things he's trying to say about photography or what have you. And the subtext, the subtitles, literally on the screen read, uh, I ha- literally have no idea what I'm saying. And this kind of thing. Yeah. I, I, I wonder what she looks like naked. And again, it's one of those things that, yeah, that does mean a lot because, of course, that's something that we all do you know when we're talking to someone there's something there's always a subtext and there's something maybe behind the scenes as your cogs are wearing away but it's a, a great moment uh, on film that's um that i think is fairly fairly famous fairly iconic and there's another great one as well where he's talking about how distant she, she seems in in bed especially when uh she he then says oh please don't have sex with me whilst you whilst you've smoked some pot you know and mm. maybe you could do it sober and then and then there's a moment where which you know to a greater or less extent 
we will all have been aware of on some level where she's then not that into it and uh, and isn't in the moment he's saying well you know you know come come on you're not really getting into it you know this is no fun for me as well she said well you got my body you know why do you need my mind i'm just i'm just switched off and i think and he says but you seem distant and then we get that great moment where the camera pulls away slightly and then we get the ghost of mm. her just walk, walked off out of bed and she's just sat next to the bed uh whilst the body her body is left in the bed uh for the love making and yeah. you see distant this is what i mean Again, another moment where, as sixteen-year-old me, I was kind of sussing out relationships and, and you know how they worked, and it was a great, great little sketch, really, just to just to illustrate that point. And uh, I think it's been parodied a lot. I think I even remember a parody on the '70s show, that '70s show, <laughs> uh, about that, uh, which uh, which worked really, really well. I find that the approach is probably an endorsement of analysis in itself because it's always in the pursuit of a better understanding of oneself. Yeah, it's navel-gazing and that's somewhat egocentric, but I think that's how we're able to connect so well with Alvi and with Annie. I think that's how we get on board, uh, on side with their point of view. Oh, it's, yeah, it's, absolutely. It's a whole, a whole film of explaining, isn't it? This is the way I'm like this. Here are my parents. These are the people that I grew up with. Mm-hmm. This is your family. Your brother, Christopher Walken, is insane. I'd forgotten about the bit, and you know, I must have looked away while I was watching it, but the moment where they imagine Alvi as if he's off the shtetl with the top hat, and then... This is how, this is how, this is how they must see me. Yeah. As an acidic Jew. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's very warm, it's very warm. And and uh, like you said, you're always on side with the characters. You, you empathise, you see both of their points of view. I always love it when uh, uh, talk about perception and the way we interpret things the same thing differently. And I love the moment where they're both being, uh, they're both their analyst. It's a split screen. So you can see both conversations going on at the same time with their respective yeah. analyst. And uh, how, how often do you sleep together? And he says, oh, hardly ever, like three times a week. She says, all the time, three times a week. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that kind of joke must have been repeated a dozen times in pop culture we've consumed over the last 30 years. And it, it possibly originated there. But it's, a lot of it is old Catskills humour. The food here is terrible. I know, in such small portions. That, mm. It's a very specific mindset. And that's why I don't care whether Annie Hall is balanced in terms of its approach to the sexes, I'm I'm not fussed whether it's fifty fifty male female, whether we get as as good an understanding of Annie. It's meant to be a meditation on a male psyche, a specific male born in the thirties, growing up in the forties and fifties. The, the mixture of high low, and there was a little quote that I found as well, which I liked. But oh, but before I come to that, I need to say that Gordon Willis didn't even do that split screen. It was one set. Isn't that fun? A little bit like Wes yeah. Anderson would have done it. So the, the analyst scene. And it's interesting, I'm sure, in 2017, commentators would take issue with the way that two-thirds of the screen is Alvi and only one-third is Annie. That's not balanced, is it? That's sexist. Yeah, but that's, <laughs> that's true. And on the other hand, the film's not called Alvi Singer, is it? Called Annie Hall. But the quote I found, which I liked, not only shows the mixture of highbrow and lowbrow, but also, I think, exemplifies why one needs a writing partner. Even if, like Woody Allen, you're constantly torn between, if we can put it like this, uh, Ingmar Bergman and Groucho Marx. The early films, like Bananas, Take the Money and Run, and Sleeper, 
which are slapstick and so infused with what people might consider to be a lower comedy. And then the Bergman pictures, interiors, another woman. The editor of Annie Hall, Ralph Rosenblum, after assembling the first cut, which was much, much longer, he characterised it as the surrealistic and abstract adventures of a neurotic Jewish comedian who was reliving his highly flawed life and in the process satirising much of our culture, a visual monologue, a more sophisticated and more philosophical version of Take the Money and Run. Marshall Brickman, co-writer, said, non-dramatic and ultimately uninteresting, a kind of cerebral exercise. And that's why you need somebody to bounce off of that's why it's necessary in the writer's room when you're off on a flight of fancy and indulging yourself you have someone and I think Wes Anderson worked best like this with Owen Wilson and it's one of the reasons why Wes always has somebody with him somebody who can just say no that's bullshit and it's as simple <laughs> it's as simple as that really yeah yeah now, yeah, yeah I agree when yeah. I think of Wes Anderson I like to believe that he writes these immaculate baroque pieces and then three weeks three months however long owen wilson breezes in takes it and just with a red pen take that out add this this is what my old man used to say i like that that's sweet (laughs) see you later you know 15 minutes work and then just jumps in a sports car i'd like it to be like that (laughs) well you're right the collaboration was was a big part of it like, like you alluded to earlier on it did begin as more of an epic much, much longer cut. It had a murder mystery who done it at its heart, or at least as a as a as a narrative thread that went through the whole the whole film. I was reading an interview online whilst I was researching where the scene that's still in Annie Hall where they miss the film and they, they have to they he says, Oh do you, what do you want to do? Get coffee for two hours? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I think the murder was actually originally gonna happen after that scene. Yeah. So there is a, there, there's some stuff that's was shot that's still in there and I think they, they did some reshoots they were then uh, then uh, editing heavily, and like you said, uh, Rosenblum, I think uh, said that they cut like the first twenty minutes out to get to Diane Keaton's character far far more quickly. And uh, you know, Woody Allen said that um, we didn't necessarily think we were going to do this picture about the relationship, but as as we were cutting it, he said the concept of the picture changed as we were cutting it. So yeah. I think this thing this went on and on and on and. The quote I came up with that I alluded to earlier as well about um, we go through life and we all need the eggs. Uh, I believe that that was written hastily in ADR. So that was dropped in later just before a test screening. Uh, And I I believe as well when when Woody Allen first came up with the original script, I think there there was something in there like ending to be shot or ending to be completed. Yeah, yeah. So this thing was always in a kind of state of flux it's obviously got woody allen's um humor at its heart and uh you know a lot of people say surely this is incredibly autobiographical but um at the, at the end of the day i think that this was this was a, a project in a state of flux right from the beginning and what an ending to you know what what a product to come up with at the end i think is it ebbed and flowed yeah if you, if you assemble the right people from the beginning you can save it at a late stage whether it's the editing but you can have off-the-cuff ideas and pull them off if you've got a cinematographer like Gordon Willis, if you're writing as Woody Allen with Marshall Brickman, and it's cast superbly. Mm-hmm. As, as we've said, that so many of the small roles went on to some or great acclaim through the 80s and 90s. Another aspect of the tension between Allen and Brickman, I don't mean a negative tension, but one which, when rubbing up against each other, can make great art. This also exemplifies the highbrow, lowbrow. Now, I've mentioned earlier, and you might know, that one title for the film 
was anhedonia, which is an inability to experience pleasure. And I always thought that was kind of cool because it sounds a bit like Annie Hall as well, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. So while Woody was saying, well, that's what we should call the picture, let's call it anhedonia, which sounds exactly like a Bergman film, like Persona, something like that. Marshall Brickman suggested titles including It Had to Be Jew... Yeah, and me and my goy. Uh, it had to be you, of course, is one of the songs uh, Diane Keaton sings in the uh, the bar. The, the the first song she sings yeah. in the bar. So and uh, I guess I play on that. But it's one of the opening jokes as well, isn't it? When uh, he muttered it under his breath, Jew. <laughs> <laughs> You're too sensitive. I love that though, and I don't know if um, as Jewish influenced and as Jewy as the current comedy set is. I feel they don't foreground it as they did in the 70s. And I talk about this a lot, admittedly. But throughout that decade, Elliot Gould, George Seagal, Barbara Streisand, Dustin Hoffman, the biggest stars in Hollywood were able to be out Jews and leads as well. And Woody Allen is another great example. It was a a decade in which the mainstream utterly accepted Jewish humour and a Jewish Hollywood. And I, I don't see the same thing now. That's one of the reasons I like Spike Lee films, because it's kind of a pronunciation and a, a bold announcement of a particular culture. That's what Annie Hall is. That's what something like Do the Right Thing, or many Spike Lee films, that's what they're about. And this, uh, I, I feel we're lacking now. Um, for me, a multicultural society should be one in which we emphasise our differences and accept them, while at the same time ad- admitting, you know, we all want to have a reasonable job in which we find fulfilment and find a person we can share that with, perhaps raise a family or at least live in a nice house. You know, there's some cer- there's certain truisms. But mm. what, one of my favourite Spike Lee pictures, Inside Man, there's a bit, it's this, I forget the name of the Sikh actor, but he's also in the Darjeeling Limited. And he's mm-hmm. been pulled out of the bank and he's complaining to Denzel Washington saying, this is outrageous, man. When you took me out of there, you were calling me a terrorist, you know, you took off my turban. This is an aspect of my culture and my religion. That's racist. And I'm always getting this, you know, every airport I go to, they're telling me to take off my turban. They're thinking I'm a Muslim. They're calling me a terrorist. And Denzel says, I bet you can get a cab, though, can't you? And, you know, that that's uh, there's a tension there and maybe it's race based and maybe it's racist. But that's reality of living in New York and... I, I like that sort of thing, the, the the back and forth about, yeah, some things are bad, some things are good, and we're all in it together in a melting pot. And that's one of the things, if, if we like Annie Hall, I think, if, if we really get on with Annie Hall, it's because we enjoy seeing that representation of a particular New York Jew. Mm. And it, you reminded me earlier, he's called Fielding Mellish in Bananas, which Mellish... Nebbish, they sound almost the same, don't they? Yeah. Uh, it's pervasive, and I think that it's something of a celebration of that introspective, open-hearted, questioning Jewishness. Yeah, and people responded. It, it was, um, this is, I think, adjusted for inflation, this is Woody Allen's biggest hit. Uh, right. Uh, quite easily. So, um, and at I the time... I predisposed to hate it because it beats Star Wars. <laughs> Into <laughs> it beat Star Wars in 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 what? Into it, it did it. It was the Oscars. Is that what you yeah, were going to go Academy. on to? Well, I remember when I was twelve when I first read what Star Wars didn't win best film. What Annie Hall? There's no way Annie Hall's better than Star Wars. That's ridiculous. Stupid. <laughs> Who's Woody Allen? He's an idiot. No, I I I I would bow. Despite being a huge Star Wars fan, I can uh, quite honestly say that I'm very happy for Annie Hall to to beat it for for best picture. <laughs> Star Wars did Star Wars did really well that year with um, all sorts of um, all sorts of awards, including things that it did excel at, such as editing and obviously special effects. So I'm um, I think that credit went where credit was due. 
uh, Jew. <laughs> <laughs> but no, it did it did really well. Thirty eight over thirty eight million dollars um, at the time, and uh, just for inflation, that's uh, I think just over one hundred forty three million dollars uh, in today's uh, pounds, shilling, and pence. So it was the 11th highest grossing picture of 1977. And uh, I think even if you don't adjust it for inflation, even if you just take the box office at the time, it's still Woody Allen's fourth highest grossing film, um, just behind Manhattan, Hannah Sisters and Midnight in Paris, which, like I mentioned earlier on, Midnight in Paris did do really good business and it did get a buzz that year. Um, but uh, obviously, if you do make it, if you do adjust for inflation, it, I think by far and away, Annie Hall is 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 the biggest Woody Allen picture to date. We don't get enough comedies about adult as much no. as I talk up the Apatow crew. We don't get enough comedies about adults and adult concerns. Uh, they're not twenty somethings in Annie Hall. About the Apatow stuff as well. I mean, like this is forty is the one attempt I think they've made at, at, at looking at older people in relationships when you've got kids and you're maybe struggling uh, and uh, you know keep the romance alive or whatever it is my point is it's about older people i still feel like they're immature characters yeah it's, I, it's a... I really do i i feel like even though these guys are neurotic and self-analyzing and in, in annie hall i feel like they're adults mm. i in don't the same get way... that in this is 40 in the same way that this the scientists in Ghostbusters are adults and the scientists in Ghostbusters aren't adults. Watching that film just about a year ago now, one of its failings was that it didn't feel like a real New York and they didn't feel like adult females. And Jurassic Park felt like adults went to Jurassic Park to go there for a weekend and Jurassic yeah. World felt like man, man-child man people were running the show. It, yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Was it? Have we lost all... Are there no adult characters in films anymore? I don't know. <laughs> no, it's a real problem. And I've, I've got high hopes for, <clears throat> since we're on the subject of romantic comedies, which is a maligned genre for a reason, I've got high hopes for The Big Sick with Kamel Nunjiani from Silicon Valley, directed yeah. by Michael Showalter, one of my favourite comedians of the last 20 years, and one who's definitely influenced by that Catskills set. Uh, and I hope to see that that isn't another excuse for scatological antics and improvised swearing and shouting about whatever's going on in the scene at the time trying yeah. to shout uh, uh, shout louder than the other people improvising in the scene about what is happening in the scene you realize that there's there's funny and there's funny and i think there's truth to be found in Superbad. that's why it's one of the better ones but there's more truth in the work of mike judge and mm-hmm. and um and woody allen and marshall brickman here and it's no surprise because they took the time to write a script. Mm. They didn't turn up and improvise on a theme, chuck out funny one-liners. That's mm. stand-up comedy. That's the very beginning of this film, which in some ways feels like almost like a mea culpa. Would he stand in before the camera again uh, with that notion that I know I'm a comic. I want to be something more than a stand-up. You see me as this, but I have this as well. There are more sides to me. And he's, you know, uh, over time he's moved completely away from. Like, people now would consider him in in that art house pantheon. Any, yeah, you're any right. film fan in their teens or twenties or thirties, they would. I think they'd be shocked by a film like Sleeper or Everything You Wanted to Know About Sex. What Woody Allen made a film with Gene Wilder from Blazing Saddles and Burt yeah. Reynolds from yeah, The Smokey yeah. and the Bandit. That's crazy.
this podcast has entirely whetted my appetite for the next time we get to talk about Woody Allen. It's nice to slip into that very specific genre. It was great to revisit Annie Hall. It was. I, I was going to wing this podcast. I was going to rewatch Bananas because I've only seen it two or three times. And then with Annie Hall, because I know it, know it much, much better, and because I watched it at such a young age, and it was so formative for me, I was going to wing it. And I, I squeezed it in my schedule, uh, and I'm really, really glad I did. The film's utterly beloved. Younger Luke, deep, deep inside, that, that could feel the warm hug that was Annie Hall, and was yeah. like the, the inner child in me, uh, you know, the, the teenager who was suddenly like, oh, Thank you so much for putting this on for me. This is great. Adore the film. So yeah, it's been great to sit here with you, Fletch, and and, and digest it and talk to you about it. And bananas it well as well, which of course feels a bit more like a footnote now because we've had such a wonderful discussion about Annie Hall and, and Woody Allen in a wider sense. Bananas love the scene with the frozen meal <laughs> <laughs> and and the seven thousand, the three thousand grilled cheese sandwiches as well. Uh, so that's you're, all you're good right. Too. I think I think that's the key to Annie Hall. It's never cloying, never sentimental, adult in its approach to nostalgia, remembrance, analysis and self-understanding. And for those reasons, it is something that you return to with such warmth. So homework, my homework is to rewatch Bananas. And I'd like the listeners out there, if they can, to track down Mickey Rose's Student Bodies, a little film I found at the end of the 90s. It's from 1981, the very first slasher parody which came at the end of the original horror movie cycle. Now, Mickey, of course, was the co-writer on Bananas and worked with Woody in a lot of his early stuff. And Luke, your homework is to listen to the moose sketch. So, yeah, it was great chatting to you about Annie Hall. Thanks very much, Fletch. And it really did set the standard for Woody Allen. I don't necessarily want to make another whole point, but something that was curious, and I will I will end on this in terms of Annie Hall, and this is my geekier, the, the, the inner marketer coming out in me somewhere. There was something about the typeface for Annie Hall, the use for the titles and uh, a lot of the promotional uh, material, uh, certainly the DVDs to this day. There was something about that that struck a chord with me and I thought you know what I think all roads in Woody Allen's career lead to and from Annie Hall in the same way that all roads in the Beach Boys career lead to and from Pet Sounds for example and the fact that Annie Hall did set the Woody Allen standard I think it was his biggest box office hit ever since then that Woody Allen brand has been solidified by that film and I looked into it I believe I am definitely right in saying that most, if not all, of his title sequences and credits on his films since 1977 with Annie Hall use uh, the white typeface of Windsor Light condensed. Yeah, yeah that's Win- right, yeah. Over a black background. Uh, so it's, it's white on black, Windsor Light condensed is the, is the typeface. And, uh, it's also used on one or two of his books and, and, and that kind of thing. But, you know, you look at any poster, Midnight in Paris, Cafe Society, they're still using that Annie Hall typeface, as I call it, which is, is, is Windsor Light condensed. Yeah. It's, so it's, that's that brand solidified. Yeah, in the same way that Wes Anderson uses Futura and both Kubrick and Woody Allen use flashcards, which is quite unusual. P.T. Anderson does it sometimes as flashcards mm. instead of a rolling credits. It, oh, yeah. It puts you into that genre, doesn't it? And when we speak does, of Woody yeah. Allen and Kubrick as well, they're not comparable to other filmmakers, especially with Woody with four decades of a film a year. It's a genre. Yeah, completely. And like we said, you know, at the beginning of Annie Hall, we've got the, the credits to no music. It's, mm. it's quite un-Woody Allen because he doesn't tend to do it. The, 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 we know he likes his jazz in New Orleans. Immediately with the flashcards with no music, it puts you in a different mindset completely. I think it makes you just sit up and take notice a bit more. 
there you have it. That's Woody Allen's Annie Hall and Bananas. And lots more Woody Allen to come here on the Electronic Labyrinth in the coming weeks and months as we eventually get to it in my DVD A to Z. I'm personally looking forward to Love and Death, but uh, it feels like a long time before we get to the L section of my DVDs. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, it's just Luke here. Uh, you've got me just signing off and letting you know how you can stay in touch with us. Uh, we're at onesensationalshot.com. We're on Twitter at onesensational. Also search uh, Facebook for One Sensational Shot. Do keep in touch on Facebook and Twitter or on the website, fill out the contact form and just let us know what you think about the show. We're always keen to hear from you guys and give uh, give out the listener feedback uh, on, on air in the future as well. Um, also just to let you guys know uh, and, and, and ask very, very kindly indeed that reviews on Stitcher and iTunes would be wonderful. Really helpful helps people find the podcast and discover us and uh, we're still a fairly fledgling show and a fledgling network so uh, do find it in your hearts to just spare two minutes to go onto iTunes, Stitcher or your uh, your, your device of choice and uh, and leave us a review there with a few stars and uh, a couple of innocuous comments or even good positive comments. Uh, all that remains to be said in the meantime is I'm going to leave you with uh, Breezing Along With The Breeze by Jackie Gleason. Yes, that is Jackie Gleason from The Honeymooners. Uh, this track's of course used on uh, the Annie Hall soundtrack and it's from uh, this recording's 1961 from Jackie Gleason's album Lazy Lively Love. Uh, originally dates from 1926 though, so very old school American song. Look forward to speaking to all you guys very soon and uh, in the meantime this is Luke and Fletch signing off. We use a large vibrating egg.